0: Hi, I'm Amy Britton, and I'm an investigative reporter. Stay tuned after the show to hear about The Post's new podcast, Canary, The Washington Post Investigates. It's a seven-part series about two women and their shared refusal to stay silent. Available now.
1: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware and I had a lot to talk about. He was at the presidential debate in Cleveland, an event he called the worst thing he's seen in more than 20 years in politics. He sits on the Judiciary Committee, which will consider the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, a person he says poses a grave danger to precedence. Kuhn sits on the Foreign Relations Committee, which puts him in touch with America's allies who are worried and adversaries who seem emboldened. And when it comes to America, who we are as a people and a nation, Coons believes that Senator John McCain and Congressman John Lewis left us with an urgent message that he hopes we heed.
0: Don't let it end
1: this way. Hear it all right now. Senator Chris Coons, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be on with you again, Jonathan. Let's start with the debate between President Trump and Vice President Biden in Cleveland. You were there. In preparation for a column that I wrote about the debate, I was looking for pictures. I saw a picture in our system of you sitting in the audience in a mask and the look on your face, even in the mask, told a story. Talk about what it was like being at that debate. And also, given what we know now, what was it like being at the debate?
0: Look, it was bad enough with what we knew at the time. Chris Wallace is someone uh, I respect as a tough interviewer, as a capable moderator. I was struck that from the literal opening sentence, President Trump was bullying him, was insulting the audience, was razzing and harassing the former vice president, did not in any way at any moment recognize or respect the rules that he'd agreed to for this debate. I've been an elected official 20 years. I've been active in politics 30 I've been to my share of rough and tumble debates, particularly in uh, local campaigns, and I've had my share of unconventional opponents, but that was unbelievable. It was simply awful to sit through. The rush, the raw force of the negative, aggressive, insulting, interrupting energy directed by President Trump at former Vice President Biden and the audience and our country and the world. One of my sons immediately following the debate texted me, they must be cheering in Russia and China. The team of us that were out there to do sort of post-debate spin rapid response for the Biden campaign were just silent as a group for minutes afterwards. It was really hard to endure. So Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, former second lady, Jill Biden was about 10 feet to my left And Mark Meadows and Don Jr. about 10 feet to my right. Mm. Um, And it was striking that they all walked in unmasked and sat there without masks through the entire thing, even as a staff person, I think a staff physician from the Cleveland Clinic came around and tried to get them to wear masks. And it was striking to me at the time just how sweaty, how red, how angry Trump seemed through the whole thing. Later when we learned that he was infected with COVID-19 and may well have been COVID positive for that debate, it added a layer of gravity and seriousness to the fact that he was literally yelling at Joe Biden for 90 minutes from a few feet away. I got tested twice actually, once rapid test, one the PCR test, both negative and then waited and waited, hoping until we got a negative test confirmation for uh, Joe and Jill Biden. There's now a COVID-19 outbreak at the White House that has infected, I think at last count, 21 people, including senators, senior members of the president's team, as well as President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump, staff of the White House, reporters, and they are still refusing to do even the most minimal contact tracing or to publicly embrace relevant public health standards. So what was already a horrifying experience being in the room for that debate then over the next week has sort of turned into a slow rolling horror as the president has made his own COVID infection into a piece of political theater and is now being replayed on cable shows all day, uh, proudly taking off his mask and recording and then re-recording his triumphant re-entry
1: still infected to the White House. First, I was gobsmacked at the visual of Marine One swooping in to medevac the president of the United States to a military hospital. And then three days later, watching this Marine One swoop back in and take him back to the White House for this cinematic return Even though he is infected, even though once he climbed all those stairs, you can see him gasping for air. You have been in public life for more than 20 years. You are on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. You travel around the world and talk to world leaders. In this statesman position that you're in, how do you even explain this to the world, if you can?
0: Well, Jonathan, first, you know, I I do think it's important that uh, Joe Biden and Jill Biden and the whole Biden campaign team stepped back. They took down attack ads. They publicly expressed their concern, their prayers for the president, and first lady, and their health, as did I, as did most political leaders in our country. President Trump does get absolutely world-class health care. He was whisked by Marine One helicopter from the fortress-like White House to a dedicated wing at Walter Reed Army Medical Hospital. There is a dedicated presidential sort of suite over there, and he was treated with a cocktail of the most cutting-edge treatments that your average American doesn't even have access to, the combination of the widely used remdesivir with a less widely used steroid that's commonly applied for those who are in some distress and a new monoclonal antibody treatment that's not yet approved for general use. And he comes back saying several days later, oh, I feel better than I've ever felt, better than 20 years before, there's nothing to be afraid of, don't let this virus ruin your life. He even said that he thinks he's immune. Yeah, which, I mean, he is the world's leading source of misinformation about this pandemic and has inspired imitators from the president of Brazil to things said and done by Putin who declared that he had an effective vaccine before there was any stage three clinical trials done or results released. How is this seen by the world? I think there is a Trump size hole in our leadership. And I think it has frayed and weakened our alliances uh, both by his aggressive actions imposing tariffs and sanctions and belittling them, our closest allies on the world stage, whether at G7 meetings or NATO meetings, demanding they pay as if there's some unpaid bar tab for their security, which is, of course, intimately connected with our security. To the point one of my sons made, I think Russia and China are gleeful about the ways in which Trump's strongman profile undermines everything about what has long made us strongest. What has made America great is our commitment to human rights and to democracy, to protecting a free press, to being a free and open society. The president of the United States was long called the leader of the free world. Uh, And one of my children asked me, well, why is he called that? And I said, that may not be as obvious today as it was in the environment I grew up in, where the world was sharply divided between the Soviet bloc and the Warsaw Pact and NATO and the United States, but we still do aspire to be the leading nation in the world in terms of fighting for and advocating for a free and open societies. And China is at this very moment perfecting and exporting its model of digital surveillance and digital authoritarianism with state-of-the-art tools that George Orwell, the author of 1984, could have only dreamed of. And to have a president whose focus and fixation is all about himself and his family. His sense of grievance and his ability to see divisions in our society and crack them further open for his own political benefit puts us and our standing in the world at
1: real peril. I skipped ahead in asking you the statesman question, and I'm gonna come back to that. But I wanna read you this quote that the communications director for the Trump campaign said yesterday on Fox News, as she was trying to contrast her candidate to Vice President Biden, where she says, and listen, he has experience as commander-in-chief, he has experience as a businessman, he has experience now fighting the coronavirus as an individual. Those firsthand experiences, Joe Biden, he doesn't have those. Wait, so the fact that the president who has downplayed coronavirus now has coronavirus is a plus?
0: You know, Jonathan, I can actually imagine a world where a newly humbled and chastened President Trump emerged from a week or two of quarantine and treatment and reflection and came out wearing a mask and said, you know, I've been irresponsible. That Rose Garden ceremony where I announced Judge Barrett as my nominee for the court and nobody was masked and people cheated on taking the rapid test and Everyone was close together, and now there's eight people at least, maybe more, who've been infected. That was a mistake. I should let the FDA follow the science and approve a vaccine when the science dictates. I now understand just how horrible, lonely, and difficult the struggles of millions of Americans infected by this disease have been. I now have some insight into how terrible the 210,000 deaths must have been, But that's not who we saw at all. We saw a belligerent, bellicose, blustering, anti-science, ill-informed, self-centered bully emerge from Walter Reed to drive around the block and wave at his own supporters, putting at risk the Secret Service agents who had to accompany him on that, and then insist on helicoptering back, putting at risk the crew of Marine One, and then stride up those stairs, not exactly forcefully, as you referenced, and shoot and then reshoot a triumphal reentry, even though there is an unchecked coronavirus outbreak within the White House. So I can imagine a world where he actually might have learned something from this experience. That's not the world we're in, because that's not who he is. As Joe Biden memorably said in the debate in Cleveland, you, Mr. President, said it is what it is. A statement that basically dismissed the severity and the significance of this pandemic. And Joe at that point said, it is what it is because you are who you are, meaning a man
1: uninterested in science and in public health. Should Vice President Biden go to the debate in Miami?
0: You know, I'll tell you that my immediate gut reaction after Cleveland was no. I admire that the fighter in him says, if there's a debate, I'm going. I think that he needs to be very careful about public health protocols. The reason that first debate wasn't at Notre Dame, where it was scheduled to be, but was at the Cleveland Clinic, was so that everybody there would be tested and follow public health protocols. Both teams agreed on this. I had to be tested before I could get on a plane and go there. I had to be tested and isolated until my test came back negative while there. I couldn't go into the debate space until I had a special uh, wristband that showed that I had tested negative. Yet the Trump core team and his family, according to press accounts, evaded all that, showed up too late to be tested, and just waltzed in and didn't wear masks. And we now know several of them may well have been positive at that point. So given all that, I think Joe Biden should only agree to another debate in person with very strong protections. Vice President Pence was just mocking my colleague, Senator Kamala Harris, for having plexiglass barriers put up. Actually, it's the Commission on Presidential Debates that made the decision. So the idea that Vice President Pence would mock this as Kamala's fortress shows that neither of them, neither the president nor vice president, really gets what this is all about which is reducing the risk of infection, to average Americans, 7 million of whom have been infected, but also to the two people who are under our Constitution most responsible for carrying out the executive functions of the presidency, the president, who's still infected, and the vice president, who so far has tested negative. I'm concerned about Kamala and the safety of the debate tomorrow night, and I'm very concerned about the safety of the debate in which
1: Joe Biden may participate in Miami. Let's move on from the horror that is the White House and the coronavirus. You mentioned South Bend, where Notre Dame is, but it's also where Judge Amy Coney Barrett is from, And she was nominated by the president to fill the seat vacated by the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You mentioned what has now become basically the super spreader event, which was her announcement in the Rose Garden. You're on judiciary, your view on Amy Coney Barrett and what this means for the Supreme Court, because she's going to get through. She's going to get confirmed, right?
0: We have very few tools with which the Democrats on the committee could slow or stop her vote. And if the Republicans are determined, even in the middle of a raging pandemic, even with three Republican members of the Senate infected, uh, to force us all to come back and cast votes, they can confirm her. Um, But I'll remind you, this is as sharp a turn in terms of the gaps between her core views on jurisprudence, on what the Constitution means, on its application to real people's daily lives. This is as sharp a turn from Justice Ginsburg, long a fighter for gender equality uh, and for an expansive view of justice and the role of the Constitution, as was the replacement um, of Clarence Thomas um, for uh, Thurgood Marshall, um, a justice who really led the fight Uh, in the courts of the United States on behalf of the NAACP for uh, racial equality and racial integration. Justice Ginsburg was um, similarly a towering figure in the fight for gender equality over decades. Um, And we hadn't even fully absorbed the news of her passing. It wasn't even an hour before uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced he was going to jam through a vote, even though there was at that point um, a very small amount of time. We're now just 28 days before the general election. Millions of people have already voted in more than 25 states. What makes this unprecedented is never before um, in American history has the Senate confirmed a judicial nominee to the Supreme Court this close to an election where the election has already started. I'll remind you just four years ago, this same Republican um, caucus insisted on blocking a vote um, back in February even a meeting, even a hearing uh, for President Obama's nominee to succeed Justice Scalia. Um, Judge Barrett um, spoke a lot about uh, Justice Scalia for whom she clerked and whom she um, cites frequently as her role model for um, what a justice should be like and what judicial philosophy they should follow. Um, And it is really striking. Uh, I've gone back and looked along with my legal team at dozens of cases where if you replace Justice Ginsburg with an acolyte of Justice Scalia, the consequences are sharp and significant. And what makes that even more concerning is the ways in which Judge Barrett in a number of speeches and law review articles that she's written makes it clear that she is more extreme than Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia often talked about reliance interests, about the importance of precedent, about his reluctance Uh, to overturn opinions, even ones that he thought were dead wrong and with which he vehemently disagreed. Judge Barrett has made it clear she has no such compunction about rapidly moving to overturn even long-settled precedents. So um, I'll be questioning her about those um, two areas, Um, the Affordable Care Act and the move by President Trump and 18 Republican state attorneys general to take away the protections of the Affordable Care Act in a case that's being heard a week after the election by the Supreme Court, and um, Judge Barrett's public comments about how Chief Justice Roberts' opinion uh, in NFIB versus Sebelius upholding the constitutionality of the ACA was um, not credible, stretched the statute beyond all plausibility. And then I'm gonna talk about um, her fidelity to Justice Scalia's uh, very conservative views and the ways in which she signaled she'd go even farther than that.
1: So there's a a story in the paper about the opening session of the, the new term of the Supreme Court. And the big news is that Justices Thomas and Alito call into question the Obergefell ruling, which made marriage equality the law of the land. How concerned should the LGBTQ community be about that and then about the addition of Amy Coney Barrett to the bench in terms of making that thought become reality.
0: Well, Justices uh, Thomas and Alito um, took uh, a swipe uh, at Obergefell um, in a context where they were essentially reaching out to make a statement that wasn't required uh, for them to do what they were doing. Um, and so it, it drew even more attention, because it's, it's clearly signaling. Um, What I just said about Judge Barrett's stated willingness to reach back and overturn um, settled precedent, even where there are significant reliance interests, should be very concerning. Um, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh have signaled that they too are uh, strong originalists or textualists, folks who um, see no validity to a lot of the key decisions that Justice Kennedy played a central role in Justice Kennedy, of course, one of the core authors of Obergefell, um, someone who saw value in the substantive due process analysis of the Constitution by the Supreme Court. Um, If that is rejected by those four justices, by Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, uh, Alito, and Thomas, and Judge Barrett were to join them, um, she signaled that she would gladly overturn decisions, uh, even one on which I think there's enormous reliance. Um, the reliance interest of having gotten married and having reorganized your entire personal life around the legal relationship of marriage strikes me as one of the most compelling uh, and that there are literally millions of Americans who've been so married over the last five years um, and that, that this r- impacts one of the most significant, most intimate uh, relationships human beings can have um, gravely concerns me. I, I think there's a real risk that they will um narrow or outright overturn Obergefell um relatively quickly if she joins the court
1: back in the old days and by old days I mean in the 80s when you know Republican presidents nominate what they thought were reliable conservative justices and then they get on the bench and they end up ruling in ways that anger not only that Republican president but the Republican base i'm particularly thinking about former justice Souter who was nominated, he was supposed to be the reliable conservative vote, and then he ended up being, to their mind, a moderate, you know, going with the liberal wing and going with the conservative ring, but not being reliable. If Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the bench, the conservative majority on the court will be six to three. Could you please explain to people why... Even if Joe Biden were to become the next president of the United States, that that 6-3 conservative majority on the court is enormously, incredibly problematic.
0: Jonathan, we haven't had a Supreme Court this conservative, if she's confirmed, since the 1930s. And in the 1930s, um, a dramatic expansion of the scope and reach of the federal government occurred uh, in which more than a dozen three and four letter agencies um, like the CDC or the SEC or the FDA or the CFTC, or the, the, whole, the whole concept of independent agencies uh, and their capability to do things like uh, regulate uh, product safety, um, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, or to regulate um, the markets like this FTC does or the SEC does. Um, or more broadly, um, to set standards for and regulate a clean air and clean water as the EPA does. Um, that whole project of having independent agencies is at risk. Um, just this past week, there's press reporting that President Trump, because of the election, he and some of his minions are reaching out to the FDA to try and change Um, the vaccine approval timeline and safety standards. In his confirmation hearing, I pressed now Justice Kavanaugh very hard on exactly this point, the so-called unitary executive theory um, that Scalia propounded uh, and which Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have said they embrace and support, uh, although they were not as forthcoming about it in their confirmation hearings as they were beforehand. Why does this matter? Um, Because whether it's the FCC and net neutrality, um, or it's the SEC uh, and um, the prevention of insider trading, uh, or it's the EPA and the protection of clean air and clean water, uh, there's a whole range of federal activity that is outside the scope of the partisan political reach of the president. The president himself cannot reach down and alter decisions by these agencies. Yet the president we have right now today has demonstrated not just an inclination, but an enthusiasm for using the tools of the executive branch inappropriately and for trying to influence the decisions of entities from the CDC to the FDA to the Federal Reserve that were long believed to be outside the realm of partisan political maneuvering. Um, This is both structurally dangerous to our democracy and the ways in which we have insulated the operations of um, a lot of the federal government bureaucracy from uh, the changes in who's elected president and those presidents narrow partisan agendas. Um, And it poses real risks to the average American in terms of things that you don't realize um, are regulated and thus are safer. Um, But whether it's clean air and clean water, whether it's toxic emissions or Um, the standards used for testing uh, products for their safety for our children, uh, or whether it's uh, communications and access to the internet and broadband, Um, it impacts, these activities impact a very broad array of things in our lives. That's just one area. There's also a whole line of cases, um, going back to Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, um, that have... um, recognized um, a sphere of privacy, a right to privacy um, that protects individual Americans, um, how they make decisions about reproductive um, healthcare, how they make decisions about contraception and when or whether to have children, how they make decisions about who to love uh, and whether to marry. This whole line of cases where Obergefell is just one of the best known and most recent Uh, But Lawrence and Windsor and Roe and Griswold, there is a long line over decades
2: of important cases. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
0: ...that have recognized um, a right to privacy in the United States. All of that stands at risk if we have an activist conservative court that seeks to undo the project of jurisprudence of the last really 80 years.
1: As you were speaking, you know, the question I asked you was focused on the Supreme Court. But then I was thinking about how many lower court judges have been confirmed, more than 230, more than 200 federal judges, lifetime appointments, they're all young. So the question for American democracy, as you talked about it from the Supreme Court level, just expands exponentially when you realize that cases that get to the Supreme Court get there after bubbling up through this judiciary that has also been remade. So given that, how alarmed are you about the American experiment?
0: Literally from the day of his election, uh, I have been gravely concerned about what impact Donald Trump might have Um, President Trump made it very clear from the day of his election um, that in partnership with Majority Leader McConnell, he intended to reshape the federal judiciary. He outsourced this project um, to the Federalist Society, which for decades um, has labored to build a a conveyor belt of so-called reliably conservative judges. And this is the crowning accomplishment of this project to undermine the political independence of the federal judiciary uh, and to recast the entire judicial branch and project um, as one captive of big-moneyed interests that are advocating for and advancing um, what are very conservative um, principles that would benefit um, the largest corporations and the wealthiest individuals in America and um, really clip the wings of the bureaucratic. Um, machinery or capacity of the federal government um, to do things that at least I believe and (laughs) millions of Americans believe are positive. In fact, Donald Trump himself continues to claim falsely um, that he cares deeply about clean air and clean water. Um, I'll remind you during that debate in Cleveland when asked about climate change, he couldn't bring himself to say it's real and we should do something about it. Um, But he did feel compelled to say no one loves clean air and clean water more than me. Yet the record of his administration and then the likely lasting legacy of the federal judges he's put on the bench is to deconstruct everything that the Obama-Biden administration and their EPA and the regulatory authorities um, that they helped lead did to combat climate change and to reduce methane emissions and to reduce toxicity, and to improve the quality of the air and the water for the people of the United States. So it's not as if Donald Trump stands up and bravely says, because I'm supported by very well funded dark money interests, I'm going to try and put my thumb on the scale and make it easier to pollute. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, I love clean air and clean water, but then his actions are making it easier for polluters to pollute and harder for regulatory authorities, whether federal or state or local, to hold them to account in any meaningful way. Um, This is profoundly corrosive of both the will of the American people expressed over election after election, um, the requirement that presidents be honest about their objectives and what they're really trying to do, um, and I think shows how Citizens United uh, was in some ways the most cynical and corrosive decision of recent decades because it allows millions and millions of dollars to be funneled into campaigns um, for judicial confirmations. I've been seeing TV ads, uh, digital ads, just in the last few days, funded by millions of dollars of contributions, we know not by whom or from where, uh, urging the confirmation of Judge Barrett to be a Supreme Court justice. Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator from Rhode Island, has dedicated a lot of time and effort um, to investigating and documenting the ways in which This is in service of a very specific agenda. I think it is gravely dangerous for the American republic.
1: You sit on judiciary, but you also sit on foreign relations. We were talking about foreign relations at the beginning of this interview, so I want to come back to it. What are the allies saying? How concerned are they?
0: In the course of the four years that President Trump has been president, um, I've led or participated in a series of congressional delegation trips, most of them bipartisan to meet with representatives of our core allies uh, in Europe, um, with the UK and France and Germany and Italy, uh, Sweden, Finland, other NATO countries, Uh, in the Indo-Pacific with Japan and South Korea, Australia, Singapore, and others. Uh, I've had meetings in Washington. I've had meetings overseas. I've had meetings one-on-one with ambassadors, foreign ministers, prime ministers. I've had meetings in large bipartisan groups. They consistently express alarm at the ways in which we're no longer a reliable ally. When Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany said to the Munich Security Conference where representatives from about 70 countries were gathered two years ago that, and I quote, the United States is no longer a reliable ally, um, that sent shockwaves through the room. It wasn't surprising. It was a conclusion she reached after three years of public squabbling. Uh, where President Trump uh, disrespected and disregarded the partnership of NATO, the sacrifice of our closest allies. Um, In another painful um, series of exchanges, I was in Denmark uh, meeting with the leadership of a close NATO ally um, that immediately responded to the attacks of 9-11 by sending troops alongside ours, who still serve alongside us in Afghanistan. Denmark is a very small country. As of that visit, they had lost 54 Danish soldiers in combat fighting alongside Americans. What on earth is Denmark doing fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq? It's because they value our alliance and our partnership and our close association um, that goes back decades and decades. What are our allies saying? Um, They are gravely concerned that Donald Trump um, is a feature, not a bug, that this isn't an accident that somehow his isolationist, nativist, protectionist worldview actually reflects what a majority of the American people think. The tariffs he's put on against Canada and the UK, Japan and South Korea that are national security based against uh, their export of steel or aluminum were denounced in every meeting as an insult to our partnerships. What are they thinking? They're thinking that if this man is reelected president of the United States, They need to reach a different set of accommodations with China, with Russia, with other allies. um, They are, in many cases, nearly despondent about the future of freedom in the world in the absence of an American president who will stand up on the world stage for a free press, for human rights, and for democracy. The ways in which Donald Trump winks at, hugs, supports, encourages authoritarians Um, from large to small, from Duterte in the Philippines to Putin in Russia, alarms and concerns our closest allies and has weakened our standing in the world.
1: If former Vice President Joe Biden becomes President of the United States, my Washington Post colleague, George Will, says you should be Secretary of State. So if Biden becomes President of the United States, one, would you want to be his Secretary of State? And then I have a follow up.
0: It would be an incredible honor uh, to serve in a Biden administration. And uh, obviously, um, former Vice President Biden has a a large circle of folks he has served with for a long time. Back to his um, days as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, his eight years in the Obama White House. Uh, He knows well uh, a whole cadre of very seasoned senior people who've got a lot of experience and who've traveled a lot of this road with him. And so I expect he would choose one of them. Um, but if he were um, to choose me because of my decade in the Senate and my experience on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, I, I'd be honored. Uh, obviously, I'd seriously consider it. Um, I am up for re-election right now in Delaware, uh, and I'd have to weigh whether I thought I could best serve in the Senate, um, working across the aisle, trying to get a Biden legislative agenda through, um, or joining him uh, in the cabinet. I. You know, I haven't been asked and I frankly don't expect to be, but um, if asked, I'd be honored and I'd seriously consider it.
1: Okay. So if you were asked and you figured it out and said yes, the second question is how hard would it be for you or the next American Secretary of State to repair the damage done in just four short years to America's standing in the world and to our alliances, our relationships around the world?
0: Well, Jonathan, um, we would have to reimagine uh, our alliances and uh, revitalize and re-engage uh, with our closest allies. We would have to begin immediately um, with outreach um, that, that goes to them and listens, um, that recognizes that the last four years have really strained and weakened and tested many of our closest alliances. Uh, China is now a peer competitor. Folks who talk about the rise of China miss the fact that it has risen and in every vector, um, you know whether development of cutting edge technologies, um, military cap- capabilities, global engagement and reach, uh, China is a country um, whose actions will define um, this century, and how the United States engages with and responds to China will define this century. And I think we've seen in in recent uh, months um, a a largely unsuccessful campaign to persuade our closest allies. This was after ZTE and Huawei um, and based on concern about 5G. um, Secretary Pompeo uh, and a number of other leaders of the Trump administration have gone to 60 countries, um, urging them to exclude Chinese uh, telecommunications gear uh, from their most central and trusted networks. And in only a handful of cases have they persuaded our very closest allies, um, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, to some extent a few others in Europe, but largely they were unsuccessful initially. And I think that should be a signal to all of us that these alliances are deeply strained. How hard would it be to build them back Um, First, we have to address our own democracy and our own functioning. In order to be fully equipped um, to lead in this century and to address the challenges of climate change, of nuclear proliferation, of um, the massive uh, refugee crisis worldwide, first we have to show a strong, engaged, and global response to the pandemic. So a Biden-Harris administration will have the opportunity Um, to not just focus on distributing an effective and safe vaccine within the United States, but to very actively engage in providing it um, securely to billions of people around the world and to do so in partnership uh, with other leading nations that are our partners in developing these vaccines. That would help remind the world of the ways in which we used to be the leading humanitarian nation. Um, We really deserve credit for being the nation um, that on the continent of Africa did more um, to combat and contain uh, and turn the tide of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, and that history I think would help uh, as we seek to reengage. But bluntly, um, we have to be an admiral, admirable democracy at home. The brutal killing of George Floyd and the millions who took to the streets in protest afterwards reminds the world that we have um, flaws that we have not fully addressed and the ways in which our Congress and our executive branch have been dysfunctional and have failed to meet the needs of just average working people across the country by dealing with the opioid epidemic, with gun violence, with prescription drug prices, all of this shows the average American democracy isn't really working. So to summarize, um, it'd be really (laughs) difficult. It would be difficult, Jonathan, to repair the harm that Donald Trump and his presidency have done to our global standing, but it's doable. First, by fixing our own democracy and showing that it can work and work well. Second, by engaging in a global pandemic response. Third, by leading the world's response to climate change. I think we could build back better many of our existing alliances um, and regain a lot of our prominence and leadership in the world. And I'm optimistic that Joe Biden is exactly the person who could successfully lead that effort
1: as our next president. So let me end by quoting you back to you. So the last time you were on the podcast, I've interviewed you so many times, but it was back in 2017 when you were on this podcast. And I made a point of telling the listeners that you are a graduate of Yale Divinity School. You are clearly a man of faith and exhibit the patience (laughs) that comes with that. You told me... Back in May 2017, quote, I have put more time in prayer than perhaps I had before. There is nothing about how he conducted the campaign or his actions in the first few months that would give me hope. But that is what faith after all is, is the triumph of hope over experience. Three years after saying that, you have now a lot of experience with this White House and this president. Do you still believe that hope will triumph?
0: Well, one of Joe's uh, favorite sayings uh, is that um, faith sees most clearly in the dark. And Joe Biden is a man who has experienced literally the darkest times that human life has to offer. Um, Tragedies at the beginning and at the latest stages of his career in public service, so searing, so devastating. Um, that I, um, I got to tell you, Jonathan, I continue to be impressed and amazed that, that that man can get up and just move forward at all. After that horrifying debate experience in Cleveland, um, as he and Jill embraced and smiled and left the stage, I was reminded again of the ways in which uh, Joe's faith sustains him and carries him, even through moments that are incredibly difficult, unpleasant, uh, even soul-crushing. Um, Joe knows that the reason he is running is to um, restore the soul of America. Um, This has been a very hard year from that perspective. Um, The passing of John Lewis, um, the last uh, trip um, that we got to make, the last pilgrimage uh, with Congressman Lewis, um, that was a a very um, emotional and challenging time. And what I hold on to is the incredible faith that um, two friends uh, of mine, uh, John McCain, whose office uh, I now um, hold in the Senate, and John Lewis, um, whose example challenges and inspires me every day. um, Both of them essentially left this life saying implicitly or explicitly, don't let it end this way. The United States has to show its heart, its soul, its faith, in um, moving past Trump and Trumpism, in re-embracing the way um, of progress and peaceful protest, and of re-engaging with the world as the nation um, that fights for human rights and democracy. Um, Faith is hardest when it is darkest. And um, that experience on the Debate Stage Tuesday was one of the most unpleasant of the 20 years I've spent in elected life. And I am holding on to my faith more strongly than ever. And I am more inspired than ever by the journey that Joe Biden has taken so far in his faith. And it gives me hope that he will not just be our next president, but a great president.
1: Senator Chris Coons from the great state, first state of Delaware. Thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
0: Hi, I'm Amy Britton, and I'm an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. In 2019, I reported on the remarkable case of a woman who spoke out to make sure that the man who sexually assaulted her was brought to justice. She never could have imagined what happened next. The Post's new seven-part investigative podcast explores the unthinkable connection between two women and the courage it takes to speak out, no matter the time, no matter the risk. Listen to Canary, the Washington Post investigates now, wherever you get your podcasts.